The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, my guest is Nigel Kuhn, a conservationist for our times, and difficult times they are. Nigel works in Zimbabwe, South Africa, Malawi, Central African Republic, and Mali, which is what we'll be focused on today. But that's just one part of Nigel, as he is a multi-skilled and multi-talented man, whom you all recall was an integral part of the Wild Eyes and Our Wild World CITES COP17 Observer Team this past uh, fall. So, on that note, let's hear from Nigel himself. Welcome, Nigel. It's wonderful to have you here today. Hi, Eileen. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to have you here. I know a lot about you, but not really all of your background and what brought you to doing what you do. So why don't we start with a little background about you. Tell us about growing up in Zimbabwe. Um, Eli, I was, I was born in 1980, which was the, um, the year that Mugabe came to power. Um, and uh, I'd say the first 18 years were, were pretty normal um, in, in the country. And characterized a lot by going on, on frequent sort of safari trips, um, which is where my love for, for conservation and wildlife really, really came from. And um, one of my goals or ambitions when I was growing up was to, to work in conservation. And it, it became sort of apparent to me as I was growing up um, in my late teens that it wasn't really going to happen uh, be, just because of the way things were, had started to go in the country with regards to conservation. And that's when I left the country and joined the British Army when I was 18. Wow. So let's back up one second. Your family was uh, born and raised in Zimbabwe, or did they emigrate there from someplace else? Uh, my, my, my grand and my mom's side, um, she came from South Africa, and she was actually born on an ox wagon. Um, and they had made the, the, the Groot track or the Great Trek from South Africa, which was over 100 years or so. And then my mom was subsequently also born in, in, in Rhodesia as, as it was then. And my father, uh, his, grand, his dad uh, was born in Germany, uh, ended up fighting for the Allies during the, the Second World War. 
And then he, my father then moved out to, to northern Rhodesia, which is now Zambia. And yeah, that's where they met. So yeah, you really have, your family has a whole lot of history in terms of what was. And um, I can imagine how difficult it was during the changes and the quote-unquote troubles. And uh, as you just said, by the time you were 18, you realized um, things weren't going to work out. And is that because of the land grabs and that the conservation Zimbabwe used to be such a um, shining star, a flagship of conservation. I think it was called the breadbasket of Africa. And then when things started to fall apart under Mugabe, what what was it that you that said to you that this isn't going to work and I'm going to join the army? Well, I think, um, you know, from about the age of 16, I really started looking at joining the military. You know, my dad was in the military, um, my granddad on, on both sides of the family. Um, and Mugabe started to lose a lot of uh, support in about 96, 97. And it culminated in him actually losing a referendum in 1998. And when he lost the referendum, the, the, the sort of opposition started to come through. But the poaching had already escalated quite a lot in the, the national parks. There were a lot more jobless people. Um, so... You know, in, in Africa, when, when, when politics is going wrong and the economy is going wrong, unfortunately, it's the national parks that suffer because people have to eat. You know, the government realizes this, so they don't actually want to do too much anti-poaching because it, it will cause people to go against them. Well, yeah. also, and, you know, poaching and anti-poaching has dramatically changed since then. It used to be trained teams, uh, Rangers, more like park rangers, and not well equipped to face with what we're dealing with now, which we're going to get more into as we move along this program, like what is going on with what you're doing currently in Mali. Um, So the scale of wildlife conservation has changed. What was the referendum that passed? And can you tell us a little bit of how that felt to the people, you, um, you know, everyday people that made such a humongous change in lifestyle that poaching went on the increase and that wildlife became a, a, util, a utilizable resource. Yeah, sure. Out of necessity. Um, the referendum basically was, um, you know, Mugabe wanted to become a president for life. Oh, and small he, detail. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the people of Zimbabwe decided that they might not want him as president for life. Um, then, you know, two years later, the, you know, the, we, had the, we had a war in Congo that we'd become embroiled in as well, which was costing a huge amount of money. I think it was a million dollars a day. And for a country like Zimbabwe, you don't have a million dollars a day to spend on a war. Um, and then there was a, a huge unbudgeted amount of money which was given to the, call it the veterans of the, 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 the Bush War, um, the Civil War. Um, and that was unbudgeted. So the economy you know, started going Tanked. down. So you rightfully, people felt displaced, angered, and um, that, they had, that they had been cheated, so to speak. Well, absolutely. And, and, and what Mugabe did then was... To, to placate the, the sort of angry and um, the, the supporters that were starting to leave him was he then started all the land invasions. Um, and he used the pretext that, um, you know, he blamed Britain and the, the West and all, the, all sorts of things. But 
really was just to placet um, all of his supporters. But one thing that actually hasn't really been spoken about is that Zimbabwe lost 70% of its wildlife populations during the land invasions, which, which went on for 10 years. So, you know, one, one, one animal which su- has suffered immensely is the cheetah. And, and there was about a thousand, I saw, uh, I, was, I was reading a couple of days ago, there was a quote where there was over 1,700 cheetah in the country um, pre-2000. And there's now 76 cheetah in the country. 76? 76? 76 cheetah. So it's it suffered an absolutely catastrophic um, decline in numbers. And it's directly linked to all of the game, sort of private game reserves, the breeding facilities, the, um, the national parks. That um, Mugabe just said, well, it's a free for all. If you want to eat, you can just go and trap. You can. You know, and, and, and cheetah suffer hugely from, from snaring because they're such a fragile animal that they will die in a day if they're caught in a snare. Um, and that's unfortunately what's happened to Zimbabwe's wildlife. This is not a new issue. And this is what I'm highlighting for my listeners. What we're facing today in terms of the losses of wildness and the wildness in our world and species is not a sudden thing. It's been gradually piling up for decades. And here we are at the tipping point of watching species crash. And uh, that's why uh, meetings like CITES and the International uh, Conservation Union and those biodiversity conferences, these are critically important because we know so much more now. And we also have the ability to do things about it. So that leads into, why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Uh, My professional background, as I mentioned earlier, I started off with the British Army, um, where I spent sort of three and a half years um, in a frontline regiment. Um, and I, I, I excelled in a few disciplines, like shoot. Um, you know, I was a, a sharpshooter, um, and it was, a, it was a fantastic regiment, the Royal Green Jackets. Um, what does that mean? Uh, the Royal Green Jackets is the regiment that I was in, um, and that's now subsequently become the Rifles. They're a, a frontline um, armored infantry regiment. So I had a great, great background there. And then following that, I went to I joined the London College of Music and Media. Um, where I did a Bachelor of Arts in Photography and Journalism. And my intention was to, to get onto the front lines and do conflict reporting because um, I, I felt that the, the, the military background would, would aid, aid me in being able to get in and tell the story and get out alive. Um, and I, in a roundabout way, I'll sort of come back to that now. I moved back to Zimbabwe in, in 2008. Um, but just before that, I did two years in South Africa, where I did a FAGASA, um, which is the Field Guides Association of Southern Africa guiding qualification. Um, and I spent two years in South Africa as a, as a, uh, working as a professional guide. And then uh, also got six months training in conservation management and anti-poaching, which was my first foray into the world of anti-poaching um, in South Africa, which was fantastic. Wow, so you really are now very well positioned with your skill sets to be doing what you are doing now, which is conservation on a whole nother level. Conservation, conservationists has changed. The method is still the same. We must protect wildness, wilderness, and species. But how we're going about doing that is very different than when we did it 20 years ago and when you were growing up. But you had the ability to see 
all these things change, which I'm going to say a lot of Westerners who and NGOs who uh, whose agendas run a lot of the conservation uh, programs in other countries don't always have that literal on the ground background where it's it's ingrained and you lived with it day to day. So how did you get into, how did that lead you in to the conservation work that you're doing now? You helped start uh, the Kariba Conservation Program. Tell us just a little bit of what the Kariba Conservation Program was and, and how you helped formulate that. In, in 2013, um, I was asked by a, a friend and colleague of mine who was also a former British Army um, to to set up an anti-poaching unit in Kariba, which was the first one really um, to be set up alongside national parks. And what we were doing is, on the face of it, we're providing logistical management um, for for national parks. But we we did a lot of the the, the sort of anti-poaching. We were in the areas, we were armed, we were going around, we were picking up snares, we were tracking, we were looking for poachers. Um, and I spent two or three months doing that, and then I moved back to Harare. And one of the things I was thinking about was the fact that there has to be a better way of doing anti-poaching than merely relying on donations. Um, especially in Zimbabwe, it's a very hard environment to try and ask for donations. And although people want to give donations, it's, it's, it's a tough ask. So I, I decided to, to look into the idea of setting up a, an anti-poaching volunteer program where you know foreign uh, foreign people, but also Zimbabweans can come. They can learn about anti-poaching. They can learn about the community um, involvement. They can learn about uh, wildlife. With with these sort of anti-poaching things, then there's a bit of a donation that comes in and that goes into the the the, the, the project, and then that money was used directly for uh, the the logistic support that we were giving national parks. Is that we're providing awareness to a, a great number of people about what's actually going on and the problems that we, we face and the problems the community face, but then we were also able to directly help on the ground. Um, and it, 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 it was a fantastic concept, I believe. And it, we was, provided it was original. A lot of help. It was rather original yeah. at that time in terms of connecting the dots of conservation with the big C, the way it's done by uh, big agendas and big NGOs to the local people and make and connecting those dots that this is your land your wildlife your country and you have a part in it absolutely yeah and um you know everyone has to do their part and um you know we were just fortunate that when i say fortunate we were really blessed to be able to just be able to do the work and and provide a lot of assistance to people that needed it so and did you find a lot of interest absolutely and you know, I think a lot of the local communities actually do have this knowledge and they do want to actually uh, preserve what's around them. But we, we have to get back to, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, so, sort of men and, and mothers and fathers in the area are exactly the same as they would be in the, in the West, in America or Europe, where they want their kids to go to school, they want their kids to have three meals a day. Um, but unfortunately, if they don't have work and they don't have the ability to do that, then they have to they have to try and find a way of doing that, and in a place where the wilderness surrounds the community, um, if they don't know how to grow their crops properly, or they don't know how to guard them against baboons or what have you, you know, trapping is the the easiest way to do it. So, well, you made really a very you, you made a critical point. Is you know, 
we often talk about you know, teaching Africans to appreciate what they have. I don't think that's the issue. And from what I'm hearing is you don't either. They have this knowledge. The, what changed is the world around them. How do they implement and use their knowledge to benefit a different world? Absolutely. absolutely. Unfortunately, and I'm sure we'll get onto this when it comes to societies, but you know, the, the governments have, have failed their people. So, you know, in, in, a, in a Western civilization where we live, we vote in um, a government, we vote in a member of parliament, and then we expect him to provide um, clean water, make sure that the roads are clean, make sure that there's safe places for the kids, that there's education. But, you know, a lot of these poorer communities don't have the recourse to be able to demand that. So they they left between a rock and a hard place, really. It sounds like we took, not we, when I say we, the world, in terms of conservation, where conservation needs to happen. We kind of took it out of the hands of the people who knew what to do with it and created an agenda that had other priorities and created a gap for the local people to become a part and parcel and participant in living their lives. Uh, no, I was just going to say, you know, the, the sand bushmen have been around for hundreds of years. You know, well, you know, original, years. original yeah. genetics. If anybody's doing any of the human genome project and doing their DNA, the sand bushmen are scientific Adam one and scientific Eve one. Yeah. Everybody dates back. So on that little note, uh, we have to step away for a break, but we're going to come back because I've got a couple of questions that you just brought up uh, that tickled my brain so stick with us we're with nigel kuhn this is ellie weiss in our wild world we'll be right back become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry our biodiversity crumbles wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems the wild effect it's in our hands ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all, and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my guest, Nigel Kuhn. You're listening to Our Wild World. And Nigel, during the first part of this program, gave us a great history of what it felt like and what it was like to grow up in Zimbabwe when the world changed. Zimbabwe changed, and it's been changing ever since. And if you pay attention to the world headlines now, we all know what's happening in Zimbabwe. And there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Zimbabwe has a lot of wildlife, but the people are disenfranchised. So, Nigel, you you focused on um, conservation, and this is what you wanted to be involved in, and you created a skill set of life that would eventually all fold together to create what is needed for the modern conservationist. And a point in that is, in conservation, it went from ranger to anti-poaching, but the scale was very different. It was usually um, subsistence poaching. Add in every border of a park started to create a scale that was no longer viable for the wildlife. So rangers sort of got outmanned and outgunned, first by the amount of subsistence poaching that went on to what is happening now that I'm going to say started in the last two or three decades, the international crime cartels and the need for specific anti-poaching focus. Tell us how that all came together for you. Being a guide is, is, is fantastic for me because you, you're taking people around the, uh, around the bush or the wilderness. You're showing them a, a, an insight into, into one of your, your major passions. Um, you know, I always remember my, my sort of big thing when I was guiding in, in South Africa. I, I, I love spiders. Um, and one of my one of my fun memories of guiding um, in South Africa, I was I had, I had all my clients and all my guests in the vehicle, and I saw this spider's nest on the top of a, a blade of grass. So I jumped out of the vehicle and I proceeded to tell them that this was uh, what what spider I thought it was, and I was telling them all about how it had uh, its, its cocoon and how it had, 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 had metamorphosized and all that sort of stuff. And I, I touched the nest. And I sort of gave it like a little bit of a squeeze to show them that, you know, it's, it's not hard and that. And uh, the, the, suddenly these legs appeared at the top of the nest. <laughs> and I think I screamed. <laughs> um, I'm, then, I'm silently screaming right now. <laughs> it was an absolute, it was, I was just shocked that there was something in there. Um, so that, that was one of my, that's one of my sort of abiding memories of, of guiding in South Africa. It's, it's um, funny because I, I just need to interject. I did the same thing in Botswana. I am not fond of spiders. Okay. Um, I'm not fond of things that have a whole lot more legs than four. Um, but I respect them. And I remember getting out of the vehicle and seeing this bush, this top of this bush, covered in this amazing web construction. And I started walking up to it. And my guide, who I so fondly remember, because your guide is your interface to the wild. Uh, guides, Absolutely. I respect guides so much because 
they are how you learn. So I was walking up to this nest and he quietly says, you may not want to do that. And I stopped within a couple of feet and he said that is one of the most poisonous spiders and they jump. So don't vibrate that thing. You never saw somebody turn and walk slowly, quickly, and quietly away. <laughs> and um, so I can appreciate that memory and uh, a lot because that was my first introduction Introduction to look, but don't touch and yeah. learn before you touch and understand what you're looking at. This goes back to um, a little bit in South Africa. We skipped a little bit. South Africa is so very different than any other country that I've become aware of in terms of how they work conservation. We spend a lot of time on this program understanding the difference of South African conservation uh, compared to sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, you worked with the Waterberg, and from what I understand, that is one of sort of the original really conservation-minded areas in South Africa. Tell us a little bit more about the experience in South Africa and how that morphs into and gave you a background for what you're doing now. Well, I went to the Waterberg um, after I left the Bush Academy. So after I did my first sort of intensive six months um, of, of theory and practical, I didn't really feel like I wanted to go straight into guiding. I felt that I needed to know a little bit more about all of the other issues surrounding conservation. And um, I went to the Waterberg and I was, I was lucky enough to, to, to work with a, a guy called Trevor Langefeld, um, who had set up an anti-poaching um, company, and another guy called Simon Rude. Um, and he asked me to... So I did a bit of anti-poaching with, with Trevor, and, and I think I went out on three... Um, three or four multi-day anti-poaching uh, patrols. Um, and I actually, I got, I got bitten by a spider um, one of the nights. I didn't feel it at all, but it, 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 it had bitten me on the ankle. But obviously, I put my legs together. And I, I, you know, to this day, I've still got these two sort of deep um, spider bites. It, it caused a bit of necrosis. And while I was recovering, uh, convalescing at, um, at, at Simon's house, he mentioned to me that he needed a, a sort of a, an assistant manager um, on a, a, a game reserve, which was quite close, um, but it, it, it had closed down, so he just needed someone to look after it. So I said, yeah, no, I'm really keen to go and do that and learn. So it was all, you know, fault management. There were elephants on the property, so there was a lot of water point management as well. And if you know anything about elephants, you know, if you... If you let the water the water hole go dry, they can actually smell the water in the pipes. So then they dig up all the pipes, and it just you know it's a, it's a nightmare. So it has it, it's a constant um, running a, running a camp, keep. running a conservation um, lodge where elephants and rhino and carnivores live is is a whole different thing than running a hotel or a lodge anywhere else in the world. Um, so it was, it was fantastic, and it was, it was a never-ending sort of job. You know, you, you start at 5 in the morning and frequently finish at 19 at night. Um, but coupled with that, we, it was 2007, I think, and we had, in South Africa, it was probably the worst year they ever had for fault fires. Um, and the whole of South Africa was being ravaged, and there were hundreds of people who got caught in these, these bushfires. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, we'd, we'd fight a fire for four days. 
Um, it was it was extremely hectic, and it was a great, it was a fantastic learning experience. And one of the things that I do remember was uh, I was in, in the vehicle, and we, we I had two guys on the back that that were working with me, and they were manning a water like a, a mobile water um, Bowser? like fire engine, yeah, Bowser. And um, I went ahead of the this sort of wall of flames, but probably about I'd say about two hundred meters. And the plan was to create a backburn. And I didn't understand how fast a fire moves. <laughs> and I'd say it probably moved about 200 meters in less than 10 seconds. And wow. suddenly I heard this frantic hitting on the, the roof. And I, as I looked up to see what, what the guys were shouting about, I saw this wall of fire literally meet, I don't know, 100 meters from me, 50 meters from me. And I reversed, but by the time I'd actually got out of the, the zone, the fire had already jumped the road in front of me. So it was, it was a, a massive learning curve because, I mean, those guys could have been burnt alive. Um, so it was something that yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that. I, I, I imagine not. You certainly learned all the skills of, of your trade, which is what you're doing now. By the seat of your pants, and there really is no better way to learn than doing it. We can study it, we can read about it, and but until you get your feet on the ground and you are in the thick of it, do you realize how many skill sets are involved in doing what your average guide and your average ranger and your um, not quite so average anti-poacher team, do, anti-poaching team does now. So that kind of brings us up to today. In 2014, you took all of this to a whole new level and started working with Rory Young and Chingetta. How did yeah. that happen? Um, so I met, um, I was introduced to Rory in, in, in Harare. Um, we we're both still living in Zimbabwe. Um, I was working in Kariba. Um, and, and Rory had also been doing some work up in uh, the Bumi Hills area, which is in Kariba too. And um, he, after our first meeting, he asked me if I'd like to come to Guinea with him and, and do some film work up there, which, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, unfortunately, the Ebola outbreak suddenly hit the world. Um, Rory still went to Guinea, but the United Nations couldn't get my paperwork um, sorted out. So... I was actually sort of bummed out by it, maybe to placate me or maybe to that he actually, you know, Rory asked me then if I'd, I'd be willing to do like a, a little uh, a film clip, a three-minute sizzler uh, for, for the, 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 the people who donate to Chingeta to see what actually happens on the ground. And I did that and I worked with Lisa Grunewald in, in the States, which was also fantastic because I was working with people who really understand what the 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 Western public wants to see and what they find interesting, um, which is sometimes it's it's not what we find interesting or it's not what grabs us. So it was very interesting to see that 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 sort of crossover you come across. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, about four months later, uh, Rory asked me if I'd like to, if I'd be willing to come out to Malawi and do some filming and photography out there, which again I you know jumped at the the opportunity. And while I was there, um, I had the I was fortunate enough to be able to impart some of my military um, knowledge um, and 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 ad- advise Rory and the Malawians on a, on a few pieces of tactics which I felt was was lacking at the time. 
Um, and that's how this whole thing sort of started with Chinguetta now. So this, we're going to get into into Chinguetta and more of what that means and what you're doing in the next section. But what I'd like to spend a little time on now is everything we've talked about up to this point, all the years of your experience, your filmmaking, the military, uh, Kariba conservation, meeting Rory, the Ebola outbreak, and finding out everything that you've learned about wildlife of itself and how it responds and what it does to people and how people respond to wildlife in conflict or in concert in living with it. I was introduced to you in uh, late August uh, through our our common friend Nick Lynch and invited you to become one of our team members for the CITES observance, uh, the CITES COP17 meeting. And how yeah. did that... So in terms of what you were talking about, gaining all this experience and you know, and what you just said about the Western uh, perspective, that it doesn't always match what's needed, which I found a lot in conservation. So did sure. CITES, you were a fantastic member of our team. Um, you. Your filmmaking, the connections, the people you introduced us to, Andy Reeve, Drew Abrahamson, um, amazing conversations and work came out of that for this program and for Wild Eyes in 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 having you as a team member. So in terms of being at CITES and your skill sets and what it's doing and what it did for you to move forward, how did that impact you? Did it? And is it going or are you finding that what you learned there in terms of that huge international committee scale where laws and referendums are being made that have to pass down to be implemented on the ground with, let's say, going back to the local communities that you work with and interface with to yeah. who live with wildlife. Did that add anything for you? Absolutely. Um, I think the first thing that, that struck me about CITES was that CITES is about trade. Um, it's not about conservation, in my, in my point of view. It's, it's about who gets what, who can trade and what. Um, and it's, it's the, the, the fundamental failing of CITES, in my opinion, is that whatever referendums or laws are passed, it's left up to the member states to implement those laws themselves. But there's no international watchdog or police force that can even cite a, a, a member organization. And, and one thing that's just clearly happened now is with Zimbabwe you know, selling 36 live elephants to China, yet at the IUCN and the CITES uh, recent meetings, it was explicitly banned that no more live elephant would be traded across borders. But... You know, there's, you can have the international outcry if you want, but there's actually no ability to sanction or arrest people who are involved in that trade. And I think that's one thing that needs to be addressed um, by, by, by the West. Well, what, it, what, what I learned from CITES in our two episodes with Ron Orenstein was yeah. to understand what CITES is. Um, it's a treaty. And if we were to try and create CITES today, it simply wouldn't happen. So what we talked about in those two episodes is what CITES is, what it can do, but more importantly, what it can't do. And I think, you know, from our team and from a conservationist, boots on the ground conservationist perspective, we all learned um, 
in that what it can't do is what we have to do. And when you you say CITES, and when we say CITES is a trade organization, that's critical because it does put the outline on what species can be traded. And if there weren't those um, parameters set in place that everyone technically agrees to, the member nations, then there'd be a free-for-all. We might not have any wildlife left at all. Absolutely. So um, what it highlights is how much work each individual nation and every person in each nation has to do. This is where the the public speaks up. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think, you know, being from Zimbabwe was a... Very eye-opening for me as well. It, it basically said to me, no matter what you do or how much effort you put in, if your government or your the, the people that are responsible for implementing those laws um, aren't on sides with with what you're trying to do, then you actually it, it, it makes life a lot harder um, for anyone who's trying to do anything in conservation. But then again, it also gives guidelines. to what we can do so that we can focus on conservation because that's not what CITES does. CITES focuses on what can be traded and who can trade it and who can't. So it really helped in my understanding, and I was hoping for our team and all the other people that had never been to CITES before got a good understanding that conservation is up to us, people, humans. 100%. It's all the people that live in the live in the, the wilderness areas that live in the cities and they love love wildlife, you know, everyone who does just the tiniest little thing, it can be magnified into, into an unstoppable sort of wave of... Um, A tsunami. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's become, from this last CITES, highly important that we all step up our game. And unfortunately, we need to step away for a break right at this really interesting point in our conversation because we're going to get into what you're doing now and what's going on in Mali and with Chengeta, which is a whole new, I'm going to use in quotes, game and game changer in terms of it brings what we learned from CITES, it brings all your skill sets into place and highlights the new world of conservation. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest, Nigel Kuhn. And we ended our last section on a little recap of CITES and what uh, being and attending there as an observer could be an eye-opener for people um, who work in conservation, the people on the ground who are trying to implement and get people engaged in protecting our earth, its resources, and these magnificent species that we're all seeing that are on the tip of um, extinction. Lions, elephants, rhinos. Those are three magnificent, iconic species, but what's incredible is everything that lives under those umbrellas. If we don't protect those species, then everything is a cascade of consequences, whether it's bottom-up or top-down. So being at CITES gave a good idea of how the politics of conservation works for a conservationist who's going to go work on the ground. So now having been armed, so to speak, with this new knowledge of some of the forces that you have to deal with in the political arena when what you really want to do is just protect wildlife and get people engaged, that kind of leads us into what you're doing now with Rory and Molly. So tell us about Chengeta and what you and Rory Young are doing. Rory, um, we hope to have Rory on when he's got a moment. Why don't you introduce us to that? And Because it is a whole new level of, it brings together everything in one little macrocosm of space of how conservation has changed. Sure. So uh, right now I'm sitting in London, um, and I've just come back from uh, my second tour of Mali, and... It's um, it, it's been very interesting because what we're doing in Mali is we training the Malian uh, or an element of the Malian military. So we've got a section which is thirty men, and then we've got five men from the Malian forestry or the foray um, unit, and we're training them in combat tracking skills to be able to track poachers. Um, so the Mali's working really well at the moment because the government, as, as was they, they showed at CITES, the West African uh, 
approach to conservation is extremely different to the Southern African approach. They don't want, they wanted elephants to be uplisted to Appendix 1. They wanted lions to be uplisted to Appendix 1. There isn't really uh, a hunting uh, sort of community in in West Africa. There is a little bit of hunting, sure, um, but it's, it's not the same as Southern Africa. So the Malian government is who we is one of the partners of the Malian Elephant um, Project, and the people that are actually leading the Malian Elephant Project are the Wild Foundation, and um, it's led by Dr. Susan Canney, who's a, a lecturer at Oxford University, and she was actually researching the desert elephant in Mali, which there's, at the time, I think there's a 450 desert elephant. And what she was doing is, is while she was doing the research, she was actually doing a lot of community work, um, not to teach the community how to, to, to look after the elephant. We've covered that already. They know how to look after it, but how to be able to improve the lives of the communities that live in these areas. It makes them feel like, okay, well, we, we're looking after the elephant as we have done, um, but we're now getting something back for it. You know, so our kids are going to school. We are being taught how to grow our crops in a, in a sort of a much um, more improved way because, you know, a lot of the areas that the desert elephants are moving in, it's all in the Sahel, which is just south of the Sahara Desert. So it's extremely dry, the soils are, are not great at all, um, and it's extremely hot. Um, you know, so that's, that's sort of the background to, to, to the Mali Elephant Project. Then the I'm gonna, war broke I'm going to interject sorry? one, one okay. little thing here. There, there was a great film, is a great film, The Elephants of Timbuktu, and yes. it highlights the trek these elephants make and the community of people along the way that the elephants go through on their migration and it's all about finding water and it's a beautiful visual and highly informational about what you just talked about and also what you just said truly highlights the difference of conservation now it's it's not something that we implement upon people it's now a conjunction and a co-joining of people and their knowledge that they have. They've lived here for centuries. They know what's going on. They know their land. They know the animals. But as you said, the world has changed and climate shift and everything has changed the ability for people's survival. But here, unlike South Africa, as we said, it's a whole other thing in South Africa. Elsewhere in Africa, Sub-Saharan and Sahelian Africa, wants to live with this wildlife. They understand the value of it. And working toward creating better coexistence where people and wildlife both thrive with limited resources. So I also want to explain one thing. When you said your second tour to Mali, that is not a tour like a safari that most of our listeners might think of. We're talking military-type tour tour of duty okay yes absolutely yeah uh go ahead fill us in on what's going on up there um in it's northern mali and uh what has changed and why this training has become so critical well what what changed is a couple of years ago there was a a rebellion in the north um you know the the northern the bedouin tribes the tuareg 
um, felt that they were being disenfranchised um, or not being looked after by the, the Malian government. So they wanted to secede from Mali. And, um, you know, as always happens in, in these sort of, uh, you know, we've just seen it happen in Syria. We've seen it happen in, in, in a few other countries. When there's a breakdown in law and order, um, the current major problem we've got is, is, is this rise of jihadism. You've got, so in, in Mali, we've got ISIS, um, we've got Al-Qaeda. So it's, it's local jihadi groups that have, have uh, pledged allegiance to either ISIS or Al-Qaeda. So, you know, coupled with this rise in, in, in terrorism and, and, and what, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a base for either ISIS or Al-Qaeda in, in um, North Africa. And um, with, with, with the troubles sort of restarting, the elephant poaching um, started up again. Um, because again, with the poaching, normally it's a breakdown of law and order, which, which you know, you get the, the poachers will come in, you'll get um, people who are the smugglers, you'll get people traffickers, you know, all of that sort of. Well, they're offering together. something to the local people that the government is not. Absolutely. A living. Um, so the difference in, in, in Mali is that there isn't the poaching teams that you'd, that say would come in in Southern Africa. You know, they're not directly targeting the elephant. It's, it's, it's a, the elephant is sort of caught in the crosshairs of about four or five different groups. And this is why, the, this is why we're now working with the Malian military to, one, restore law and order into the area. But what, what happens in Mali is that the, the Malian military normally travel by road. So they don't actually go onto the ground and they're not, they don't, uh, normally do a sort of patrolling. Secondly, they don't know how to track. Um, so they don't know how to track animals. They don't know how to track humans. So that's where we come in and we teach them how to, to, to track animals, so track the elephants. Um, but more importantly, if uh, the information comes through from the, one of the, the 857 uh, sources of, of, of information, which is truly remarkable, your bush network, your bush telegraph. Absolutely. So there's there's nearly 900 people that are informers in this 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 northern sector of Mali, which is ph- phenomenal. That uh, is. And quite often they will report that there's guys that have been seen in the area with weapons, or guys have come into the villages and they've asked where uh, the elephants are, or they'll say that uh, jihadis have come into the village and they've, they've they've started you know attacking the population, and we're talking about the normal thing of, of chopping heads off and, and all of that sort of uh, you know, terrible uh, atrocities, then someone has to be able to react. Um, so is this network of informants in place um, because they felt the need to keep their own communities informed of who's coming in when, not so much the elephants when they're coming, but because the elephants are coming, they're bringing in the extremists who want to poach them. So therefore, it could put pressure on the communities to be impressed into service. So this network was there. And how did you and Rory connect with this network and create that sense of trust? Sure. So the network was created um, by the Mali Elephant Project, so that's Wild Foundation. And there's a, there's a fantastic... Um, guy out there um, who sort of runs the, the local, the, the network, a guy called Ganeme. Um, he's an absolute, he's an anthropologist 
And um, so he understands humans. And um, so he set this network up. Then um, when the poaching started, uh, they, they realized that they actually needed to to do some anti-poaching and, and to be on the, get, get these guys on the ground and trained. And that's where Rory was then contacted and Chingeta Wildlife. Um, because Chingeta Wildlife are very, very much aware that when it comes to anti-poaching, it's sort of 70% community and 30% law enforcement. Um, you, you look after the community, you get the community on sides, they'll do the anti-poaching for you. Um, and you're just coming in, mate, you know, you're coming in to do the arrests and to actually be the final um, sort of driver of the whole, the whole thing. But well, turning it from react- you're, you're helping them turn it from reactive response to a proactive response. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's all proactive. So, you know, if you're reactive, the the animals already died. So, um, sure, you can you can take the poachers out, but as we find out with the poaching all over the world, you know, you take one poacher out, there's another, you know, hundred waiting or thousand waiting in the in the wings. So, if you can proactively change the attitude of the communities to towards conservation Empow- and, towards and empowerment, poaching, exactly then you, you're saving those animals. So you'll still have the hardened criminals, but you have all of the, the sort of the, the less um, hardline poachers. You know, they've been taken out of the system by themselves, and it's, it's now a lot easier to catch the hardline criminals because they don't have this... this, this they're uh, not hidden anymore. They're not hidden, and they're not swimming in these communities of criminals. So that's that's how um, sort of Chingeta and wild work. So what does Chingeta mean? It's a Shona word. What does that yeah, mean? Chingeta is a Shona word, and it uh, basically means to look after or to take care of. Um, and both, you know, Rory and myself are, are Zimbabwean, um, although Rory was born in Zambia. Um, so it, it, it's kind of fitting that, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that, Chinget is the, the word that's used as an all-encompassing kind of look after the community, look after the wildlife, and it'll look after itself. Which is pretty much what we're talking about and what the goal of this program is, our wild world, is that we all have to become involved. And that's we it. here in the West live a di- very different lifestyle. And for us, it's a lot about loving wildlife, which is all well and good. But conservation is about so much more than loving wildlife. We have to learn to love and work with and incorporate and give the people their place back in their community. And if we don't create programs, projects, or an agenda that includes this magnificent historical context of all these people who live with this and have the pulse of what's going on in their country, not according to the news headlines and not according to the big NGOs. These are the people that are going to become, that are, as as far as I'm concerned, have always been critical in making any conservation effort Absolutely, yeah. So uh, we have just a a minute or two left. So what's the future? So... um I've got another four months in, in, in Mali coming up. Um, so it's basically a month on two months off. And we are, we've, we've trained our first guys for six weeks, our first 35 men. And it's, it's now going to be moving into actually doing in-operation training. So we'll be on the ground looking for tracks, uh, 
you know, if we get uh, crashed out because we get information, we'll actually be going out there to, to look for look for the poachers, hunt them down, arrest them, get the information we need, who's buying, who's doing what, and then we can start trying to roll up the networks. Um, so that's that's that. Well, this um, is fascinating. You've got your work cut out for you, and I, I believe you said you have a, a little bit of film for us, which will link to this program. Absolutely, And also, yeah. please check out uh, Kariba Conservation on Facebook, Nigel Kuhn's website, and uh, com, and you'll see a lot of video and Nigel's beautiful photography work. And um, his blog at nigelkuhn.wordpress.com. And uh, you'll get a really good feeling for the pulse of what's going on. So, Nigel, I hope to be talking with you more in the future um, and coming up with Rory. And there is a clip going on right now at Chengeta Wildlife on Facebook that will give you a really good idea of the skill sets that are so critical that Nigel and Rory and their um, fellow anti-poaching teams are passing on to these communities. And it it is kind of a heart-pounding kind of clip, but you'll see very much what has changed and what conservation is facing today as we reach all these temp- tipping points and until we get to another place in time, hopefully in the near future, where the world comes together to look and protect our wild world. So, unfortunately, Nigel, we're out of time today. It's been a pleasure yeah. talking with you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome, and thank you so much for being a part of the Wild Eyes team. You helped me learn so much, and that helped us le- pass this information on to our listeners, and hopefully our listeners will pick up the ball and start rolling because everybody is important today in saving wildlife. So until next week, this is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 